Hey everyone, my name is RT Custer and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Vortic Watch Company in Fort Collins, Colorado. We salvage and restore antique American pocket watches that have been scrapped for their precious metal cases by pawn shops and jewelry stores alike. We preserve these pieces of American history inside custom wristwatches completely made in the United States. Most people call what we do pocket watch conversions, but we call them conversation pieces. You can learn more about us at www.vorticwatches.com. That's V as in Victor, O-R-T-I-C, watches, plural, dot com. Hey, I'm glad you're here. As part of my research for the podcast, the National Watch and Clock Museum lets me do a little bit of time traveling here and there. I've just got back from the Italian Opera House in Paris. It was November 2nd, 1858. Hang on, let me shut this real quick. Okay, so this is what happened. Like I said, at the Opera House in Paris, 1858. My eyes adjusted to the light and there he was. Paul Morphy in his private opera box, exactly where the museum told me he would be. With him, two other proper gentlemen, a duke and a count. One of them put out a chessboard and the other had the pieces. They gestured for a game and Morphy obliged, albeit not looking too enthused. Morphy with the white pieces moved first. The gentlemen responded with their pawn. And soon I saw a Philidor defense. Throughout the whole game, Morphy was trying to watch the opera while his opponents were focused on the match at hand. After a set of moves, I tried making my way over to a different opera box to get a closer look. Finding a good vantage point, I examined the board again. There was so much that I missed. Morphy had lost his queen and both knights. Only a single rook and bishop were left. But then, before I knew it, Morphy moves rook d1 to d8. And then... Checkmate. Welcome to the NAWCC Podcast, a podcast where we use timepieces and horology to help us understand history. Today, you're tuning in to episode 5. Thanks for joining, and please enjoy. the National Watch and Clock Museum, as you wander around the pocket watch exhibits, you'll see all sorts of beautiful pieces. From Ingersoll Watch Company's dollar watches to a golden hour repeater, there's also a chiming pocket watch made for Napoleon Bonaparte's sister. There's so many unique movement systems, crafted cases, and many ornate designs. Eventually, you'll come to a spot where under the glass display, you'll see a single watch dial. It doesn't have a case, there's no movement behind it, nothing at all. No springs, wheels, or pinions, just one single dial. Lean in a bit more and you'll see that instead of numbers surrounding the face, there are small, 
painted chess pieces. The surface is enameled, and the chess figures were painted and baked in the dial. And inscribed in red and black are the words, made for Paul Morphy by the American Watch Company. The uniqueness of this dial makes it stand out from the many other pocket watches that surround it in the museum. This dial began as part of a complete watch, given to Morphy as a gift, after becoming the first world chess champion. But sadly, there is no happy ending. Morphy died young at 47 years old. In his later years, he completely stopped playing chess. Morphy himself pawned the watch, and the complete piece has been lost forever to time. Only the dial remains, a symbol reminding us of Morphy's life and influence. What brought Morphy to pawn off the watch? It was valuable and marked a momentous occasion in his life. I mean, imagine, the first chess champion in the world. But of course, there's more to his story. The story of a man who would later be known as the pride and sorrow of chess. So in this episode of the podcast, we're taking a closer look behind the dial at Morphy himself, his life, and his legacy. We're going to take a look at how Morphy's fingerprints are still in existence today and explore how the simple game of chess has a timelessness that will last for many, many years to come. So I agree with Maria in The Sound of Music when she says that the very beginning is a very good place to start. And that's exactly what we'll do. We're going to start at the beginning of Paul Morphy's life. I'm definitely not an expert, but I know someone who is, and is very well read on his chess and Morphy history. So my name is Lucas Anderson. Originally, I'm from uh, rural Oklahoma, where there's not much chess at all. But by way of Europe, I, I now live in Houston, Texas. Lucas is a teacher and administrator by day, where he works with 6th through 12th grade students. And he's also a chess coach. And sometimes, on other days, you can find him giving detailed presentations on well-known and historic chess players. Players like Garry Kasparov, Akibo Rubinstein, Judith Polgar, and Bobby Fischer have all gotten their own hour-and-a-half-long presentation. I wanted to make chess more interesting for students and for, you know, just the general public by trying to tell the stories behind chess. I started reading lots of books on chess history, and then in my local chess club, I, along with a friend, started presenting the biographies and the games that many former chess champions had played, and as well as contemporary players. At first, we just started recording those lectures to put on YouTube. Lucas's channel has over a million views from all over the world, most of which comes from the recorded presentations. Not only does Lucas cover the biographical history of the chess player, but he also has a modern chess master break down the strategy of famous matches. But back to Morphe. Okay, Lucas, let's start with his childhood. Sure. So Morphe was born in 1837 in New Orleans, Louisiana. He was born to a fairly prominent family. His great-grandfather had been the U.S. consul in Malaga, Spain, and had worked under Thomas Jefferson, actually. Morphy's family had been settled in New Orleans for a while, and his father was the attorney general for the state of Louisiana, and he was eventually named to the Louisiana Supreme Court. His mother was a soprano singer, an instrumentalist, and a composer. 
Morphe had a brother and a sister. His sister and Paul and his brother, for that matter, were all very well enmeshed in the musical scene in New Orleans. They were very avid attendees of the opera, for example. Morphe's childhood would have been an easy one, surrounded by the well-connected families in New Orleans, quite a bit of money, obviously, and it would have been a very easy, pleasant childhood. So the Morphe family most certainly belonged to high society, and along with the music and social parties, the game of chess also belonged to the rich. Unlike today, where we can log onto the internet and play a few matches, during the 1800s, chess was expensive. It cost time and money to be able to play. Chess was reserved for people who had chess sets, which were carved out of, you know, wood at the least, or precious minerals or stones, ivory, for example. But also the ability to have a lighting in your house before the advent of electricity to play in the evenings when work hours were ended was something that would have been reserved for the most well-off families in society. His uncle, Ernest Morphy, and Morphy's father would often play leisurely games of chess in their home. And the young, observant Paul Morphy quickly figured out how the game worked just by watching attentively. By the time Morphy was a little later in his childhood, maybe seven or eight, he started actually playing with his father and particularly with his uncle. And by the time he was nine, it was clear that Morphy was a stronger player than his father or his uncle. And by the age of 10 or 11, he was, by all respects, the strongest player in New Orleans. Morphy was beating grown men, even generals, when he was just nine years old. He distinguished himself from a very early age, but he was, by all accounts, an autodidact. He was self-taught. He just kind of learned and figured out these strategies themselves. He didn't read books. He didn't have a coach. And he just learned through playing other people and, you know, thinking through the game on his own. Morphy was the ideal child of high society, brightest student in his class, engaged in culture. During his university years at Springfield College in Alabama, he studied Latin, Greek, French, Spanish. He was strong in math and well articulated. Paul, in his characterizations, is always portrayed as unfailingly polite. You know, there was a big emphasis on manners and courtesy, speech, and, you know, a dignified manner of acting and being. Just in his day-to-day -day interactions with people, every single person whose account we have notes that he was very well-spoken and very kind and very courteous in his interactions, whether they were in writing or in person. Morphe played chess often in his childhood. His uncle was one of his biggest supporters and often would arrange matches for Morphe to play in. His uncle even put up his own money to match Morphe up with other players. So as a child and eventually as a teenager, Morphe became well-known, making a name for himself in the New Orleans chess scene and also making waves nationally. He entered college as a teenager, being 15 years old. But unlike his childhood, his time at college was rarely occupied with chess. He essentially stopped playing. There are reports that he played a few casual games with a friend of his, but he, he really left chess to the side and he studied very diligently. At college, Morphe made a name for himself in a different way. He received top honors when graduating and spoke at his commencement. His undergraduate thesis was about the conditions for which the South could conceivably declare war on the North. This was shortly before the American Civil War. He argued for a very limited set of circumstances and argued 
adamantly against the idea of secession. And it's ironic because he graduates college at age 17 or 18, and these ideas sound very mature and sophisticated for someone that young, but he is, by all accounts, extremely intelligent, very well read, very well spoken, very articulate. Morphy then went on to study law at the University of Louisiana and graduated at age 19. He picked up chess again for leisure, since he was often around his family. But after graduating, Morphy had a problem. He wanted to be a lawyer, but in Louisiana, you had to be at least 21 years old to legally practice law. So he knew that he had some time before he was going to begin the practice of law. So with the help of his uncle and with the support of his family, he decided he was going to play a bit. Morphy decided to play more chess. Now with more time, Morphy picked up chess again, playing local, regional, and national matches. And he participated in the first ever American Chess Congress, where he faced the strongest U.S. players at the time. He was known by reputation, but the participants there really didn't know how strong he was. And he won all of his matches, becoming the U.S. champion. And, and he didn't lose a game until the championship against Lewis Paulson. He dropped one game and he ended up winning that match. Five wins, one loss, two draws. By all accounts, that's a very crushing win, you know, to win that handily over the best players in the United States. And, you know, he's 19, 20 years old at the time. And it was really on the backs of this that the United States decided to become more organized with regards to a chess association. They founded the American Chess Association. Okay, so here's the situation. Morphe was widely recognized as the best chess player in America. He wanted to practice law, but he can't until he turns 21. So instead, he decides to go to Europe. Along with his mother and sister, Morphe decided to travel to Paris by way of London. Granted, Morphy could do this because he came from a well-off family, and his mother had familial connections in France. At the same time, Morphy knows that there are many strong chess players in Europe, and he sees an opportunity to face them. So, he and his family boarded a steamer boat and went on their way. Having made his name known in the chess world, before he and his family left for Paris, American journalists and chess players wrote to the European peers, telling them of Morphy's visit. And so there's already some stirring among the strongest players in Europe to say, you know, I, I look forward to his visit. Um, I will extend him my full hospitality. I would be happy to help arrange matches between him and other players or introduce him to various circles. Morphy's first stop was England. There, he stayed a few months playing at local chess clubs. But there was one person in particular he wanted to face. Howard Staunton, the uh, English master. At the time, Staunton was one of the strongest chess players in the world. And Morphy desperately wanted to arrange a match against him. He wanted to test himself against the strongest players in the world. He was confident that he would prevail in those matches. But unfortunately for Morphy, he never gets the chance to face Staunton. Now, there are many theories as to why their face-off never occurred. The prevailing theory now is that Staunton was toward the tail end of his career and really wanted to dodge a match with Paul Morphy, and so that match never happened. Having no reason to stay in England, Morphy and his family move on to Paris. And never having been there, Morphy was struck by the city. During the day, he played chess. Morphy was to be found at the uh, Café de la Régence. At the time was 
kind of the European hub for chess. It was just a cafe where people could go in and play. And, and, and you know, Benjamin Franklin had played there. Napoleon Bonaparte had played there. Later on, Karl Marx um, would play there. And in the evenings, he wandered around the city, taking in the culture. Particularly the opera. Aside from the culture and fun, Morphy wanted to go up against strong chess players to test his abilities and against those he had never played before. And that's just what he did. Early on, he faced Daniel Harvitz, a chess professional well-known in the area who resigned to Morphy after a series of matches. And that really sent ripples in the European chess scene. A lot of other names emerged as people who wanted to arrange matches against Morphy, and Morphy was very happy to do so. It was in Paris where Morphy's many famous achievements happened. There was that one time where he staged a chess exhibition against eight players all at once. So he's playing eight players simultaneously while not even looking at the boards. Morphy was sitting in another room while eight chess players and anybody who wanted to consult with them were in a separate room. So really, it's more than eight players. It's like a small army versus Morphy. They're all looking at the board. Morphy is in another room, and um, he's playing eight matches simultaneously, and this takes 10 hours. And the end result? Morphy wins six matches. The other two? Ties. And he was playing against some of the stronger players in Paris, and it was considered an unthinkable accomplishment. And so the story goes, he never got up for food or water. He just stared at the wall for 10 solid hours, relaying his moves you know, dispatching players one by one. He was given a standing ovation and everybody wanted to congratulate him. And then people were lined up at his hotel the next day, you know, to talk about this feat. And I think after that, Staunton was even less inclined to try to arrange a match against Morphy. And of course, there was his most famous match, which you heard me talk about at the beginning of this episode. The most beautiful game that Morphy played, and perhaps the most beautiful game anybody has ever played, is the so-called opera game. Now, I won't give a full breakdown of the match, but if you're interested, you can find many step-by-step analyses of this match online. But to recap, two Parisian noblemen worked together and challenged Morphy to a match while Morphy was trying to enjoy the opera. And Morphy played a beautiful game and dispatched them in short order, the checkmating pattern that Morphy created for this game still bears that name. It's called the Opera Mate. Many modern chess teachers use this match to teach foundational principles of chess. Principles like peace development, founded attacks, mobility, and initiative. Morphy was known to make every single move count. Help your pieces, help you, he once said. Chess author Richard Reddy said this about Morphy. Morphy was the first positional player who understood the strategic basis of the attack, unlike his romantic rivals. And yet, he was untouchable. But if we look at the players of the time and the results and we estimate the playing strength of the respective players at the time, Morphy is leaps and bounds above his peers. Keep in mind, Morphy is barely 20 years old at this time. He's young, and with the waves he's made in Europe, Many predicted a bright and promising future for this young man. 
and he beat everybody that he was able to arrange a match with. Everyone notable, certainly, except Staunton. He proved to himself that he was the best chess player in the world, much like he believed to be the case. And that behind him and with his law career on the horizon, I think Morphy was quite keen to return to the United States and enter his professional life. But instead of riding the wave of his chess successes, Morphy decided his time in Europe should end and made his way back to America. Waiting for him in New York were banquets in his honor, celebrating his chess successes. He attended dinners, played exhibition matches, and it was at one of these engagements where he was given a custom personalized pocket watch by the New York Chess Club. The watch had a stem topped off by a coronet, also known as a crown. It was studded with diamonds. And remember the dial I mentioned at the beginning of the episode? That dial was made especially for Morphe and this watch. The case was gold, and on it, the arms of the United States, and the inscription to Paul Morphy from the Testimonial Committee of the New York Chess Club as their tribute to his genius and worth, May 1859. You know, Morphy is a curious character. He's the best chess player in the world at this point. But from what historians know, Morphy didn't really have the desire for chess domination. He's quite clear upon his return to the United States that, you know, chess is, is a leisurely activity, but it shouldn't be anything more than that. It should always remain a pastime and a leisure, and it should not detract from participation in society. And for, for Morphy, that was a hopeful career in law. He hoped to follow in his father's footsteps, to set up his own law practice. He even promised his mother to give up chess entirely. You know, he would put chess behind him, that he would not endorse or participate in any published information about his chess career, and that he would move on, that he would start courting potential wives in New Orleans, and that he would set up a law practice, follow in his father's footsteps, etc. And that was certainly Morphy's intention. So it's 1859 when Morphy returns to America. He goes back home to New Orleans and begins to start his professional life. A couple years pass, then Morphy's plans, along with everyone else in America, gets interrupted by civil war. We'll be right back. Auctions is a family-owned business providing high-quality curated auctions worldwide. In 1974, Jim Miller began as an antique dealer in Baden, Ontario, Canada. He passed down his knowledge and passion for antiques to his sons, Ethan and Justin, who started Miller & Miller Auctions to deal in high-end wristwatches, pocket watches, clocks, and other collectibles. Consign with Miller & Miller Auctions, whose experienced staff will make the process easy. Call toll-free at 1-833-662-4800 or email info at millerandmillerauctions.com to find out how. Visit millerandmillerauctions.com today to see the latest curated auction for the discerning collector.
You're listening to the NAWCC podcast. Welcome back. Today, we're looking at the life and legacy of Paul Morphy, a child chess prodigy. When he was 20 years old, he toured parts of Europe, playing and challenging some of the best chess opponents in the world. But now, vowing to leave chess behind him, Morphy, who was 22 years old, returned home to New Orleans to start his career in law. But his long-term plans were interrupted as the United States became divided by civil war. Like many people in America at the time, the war caused serious interruptions and tensions in Morphy's life. Morphy was against secession, but Louisiana became part of the Confederacy. This was right after Morphy has been received so warmly in New York. New York was a second home for him. He really had a close group of friends there. And now they're being separated over politics. When the southern states started seceding and Louisiana followed in short order, Morphy was very conflicted. Although he never enlisted as a soldier, after all, Morphy argued against secession, and by descriptions of his personality, he was not known to be confrontational. But out of a sense of duty, Morphy makes some attempts to lend non-combatant services to the Confederacy. But he's rejected and told to go home. So Morphy returns to New Orleans, probably relieved, but feeling that he's done his civic duty as a citizen of Louisiana. And the Civil War is very hard on families, particularly the more aristocratic noble families. During the Civil War, you know, the soldiers are quartering in houses and supplies are running short. And it's a fairly tough time. So his, he and his mother and sister decide to go to Europe a second time. And they stay in Paris for well over a year. And this time, Morphy returned to Paris as a conscientious objector and not a chess player, because, of course, he made a commitment to leave that life behind him. Morphy and part of his family waited out the war in Paris. And when they returned to New Orleans post-Civil War, you know, life is not the same. A lot of families have been devastated by the Civil War, either through uh, deaths of loved ones, lost fortunes, etc. A lot of the cultural scene of New Orleans would never recover. The opera, for example, that Morphy so knew and loved. And this was personally difficult. He and his family and New Orleans more broadly had a hard time recovering. Morphy's father died a few years before the Civil War began, leaving the family his wealth, which was about $150,000. You know, and that time was a significant amount of money, even though the children were getting a share of it. He was set for life. Like, he didn't have to work. He could lead, lead a fairly comfortable lifestyle in New Orleans without generating his own income. But that wasn't Morphy's style. Even with his inheritance, Morphy still had the desire to pave his own career path away from chess. And although he was left with an inheritance, the aftermath of the war did cause his family to have some financial difficulties. They lost much of their wealth due to the war, and eventually his mother and sister gave music lessons to earn the family some extra income. He did try to set up a law practice when he got back to New Orleans. He put an ad in the newspaper for a couple of months and everything, but he wasn't getting a lot of clients. In fact, most people came to see him to talk about chess, and it really kind of got on his nerves because he was trying to put that behind him. People were persistent, offering him money to play in tournaments and matches. But Morphy wouldn't budge. At the time, he only ever played in private with close friends and family. Playing publicly was not what he wanted. What he really wanted 
was to move on to a proper career. But it's not really happening, either A, because of people's indelible association with him as a chess player, or B, because he's really not putting a lot of effort into it. And it's not entirely clear which is the case, but it's probably a healthy dose of the latter. So here's another detail about Morphe. Although he was naturally smart, talented, and very well-mannered, at other times, he was described as lazy or sedentary by some of his close friends and family. Another way to look at this is that he's book smart, but he lacked the drive to dedicate himself to long-term goals. Doesn't make it as a lawyer. He's offered a career in banking. His father previously had been director of the Bank of Louisiana. That doesn't really work out. He's offered a partnership in a law firm. That doesn't work out either. And so he has kind of setback after setback and probably owing to his lack of commitment to any of these careers. When the war ended, Morphy was entering into his 30s, and the older he gets, his life moves further and further away from the glory days of his European tour, and at the same time, further and further away from chess. In many ways, Morphy got what he wanted. Through his refusals to play publicly, people eventually moved on and didn't bother him anymore. And so his friends stopped asking him to play. You know, the the media stopped calling on him, and even though He was getting letters from various parts of the United States, even into the 1870s, humbly requesting that he come, even if he wasn't going to participate in a tournament, at least come to make an appearance at a tournament. He refused to. There were times where he was vacillating on whether to do it or not, but he never did actually participate in an American chess event after this. Much of what we know about Morphy's post-Civil War life is due to the journals and letters of his friends. Morphy consistently lived a private life, and by all accounts, his day-to-day life looked very simple during his middle age. He had a very um, regimented routine. You know, he would get up in the morning, dress very well. He always wanted to be, you know, clean-shaven and and well-dressed. He always wanted to look nice. He would walk and get a newspaper and take it to a nearby hotel, read it in the lobby of the hotel. Maybe he would call on some friends and go visit with some friends and just talk, or maybe he would spend the afternoon in quiet study. He was a very avid reader. Then he would take a walk along Canal Street in New Orleans and um, then return home. Those who witnessed Morphe when he was young could be shocked to see what he would become in his later years. The once bright young man would grow into adulthood and eventually become plagued with mental illness. That made him a bit of an outcast in society, both among dating circles, it made it difficult to to date, and also in the employment circles and even in some social circles. It was rumored that he eventually started seeing conspiracies and started having irrational fears. People saw him talking into the air and bowing to invisible objects. His family, being concerned, tried taking him to a mental institution and tried convincing him to stay. He argued quite vehemently that there was no legal grounds to deprive him of his freedom and the mental institution was forced to agree. And so the family took him back and tried to just care for him at home as best they could. But I think it was clear to them and I think it was also clear to his inner circle that um, his mental state was declining. Ruben Fine was a chess player and psychiatrist in the 1930s. And he theorized that Morphe had a persecutory complex meaning Morphe thought people were out to get him. He thought that he had been denied part of his rightful inheritance from his father. 
And he took the matter to court and lost quite convincingly. And he had a distrust of people outside of his, I guess, his circle of trust. And then one day in 1884, after his routine daytime readings and walks. He comes back on a July day and it's been very hot. So he goes to take his bath around 1 p.m. And um, his mom notices that he hasn't come out of the, the bathtub and she goes to check on him and finds that he is unresponsive and calls down to the street and there's a doctor nearby and they attempt to resuscitate him and fail and they call his death congestion of the brain. It's really unclear whether he had an aneurysm or, a, or, or something of that nature. And just like that, Morphe is gone. He died at 47 years old. But I want to take us back to that dial, the dial from the pocket watch that was presented to him upon his return to Europe. Why have it displayed at the National Watch and Clock Museum? Looking at his own personal standards, Morphe's life failed quite miserably. He didn't measure up to his family's expectations or the expectations of those who witnessed his early chess greatness. But what Morphe would never know is that his life would still be remembered to this day. Morphe's legacy lives on, and as author David Lawson puts it, he has become known as the pride and sorrow of chess. We'll be right back. Jones & Haran specializes in horological auctions with no reserves, no buyer's premium, and free, fast, fully insured shipping within the U.S. Unusual and interesting Watham pocket watches are among their specialties, so they are proud to help support this podcast. They hold bi-weekly online auctions as well as twice-yearly live webcast auctions. Call 603-623-5314 or go to jones-haran.com. That's www.jones-horan.com. Hey everyone, RT Custer here from Vortic again. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Vortic Watch Company is a proud sponsor of this podcast and supporter of the NAWCC. In our efforts to preserve American history one watch at a time, we're always looking for great people to join our team. Currently, we're searching for watchmakers to help us restore the antique pocket watches we salvage and preserve inside of our wristwatches. If you or someone you know is a watchmaker, please contact us by visiting www.vortecwatches.com N-A-W-C-C to learn more about us and potentially join our team. Welcome back to the N-A-W-C-C podcast. Paul Morphy, the pride and sorrow of chess. Looking back at his life, the sorrow is obvious. Dying at a young age and never fully stepping into his potential, the narrative arc of Morphe's life was indeed tragic. But history is ironic, and many people who made great impacts in their fields often receive recognition only after they die, and they personally never know the effect of their legacy on the world. And that's just what happened with Paul Morphy. So in this last portion of the episode, We'll take a look at a few examples where Morphe's legacy surpassed his life. 
we'll first look at artistic interpretations and then his lasting contributions to the chess world. A lot of times, tragic stories make good stories. There's drama, action, triumph, and loss. And as we heard earlier, Morphe's life included all the elements of a good story. In 1974, an old science fiction magazine called If published a short story entitled Midnight by the Morphe Watch. It was written by American author Fritz Lieber, who enjoyed chess and wrote the game into his stories often. Lieber mainly wrote in the fantasy, horror, and science fiction genres, and this story is no exception. I'm not going to spoil it, but to give you an idea, Midnight by the Morphe Watch follows an elderly man who plays chess as an amateur. He stumbles across Paul Morphe's custom watch one day and buys it. In the following days, he realizes that his chess skills have become supernaturally genius. But after some time, he starts to feel some side effects. And the story is definitely worth reading in full. So go check it out. As we know, the Watch and Clock Museum only has in possession Morphe's dial. But there's a place today where we can see a modern interpretation of a watch inspired by the original Morphe dial. Which brings me to Roland Murphy. My name's Roland Murphy from RGM Watch Company. I'm a watchmaker, founder of RGM Watch Company, which was started in 1992. Roland's company is based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he is indeed a professional. He studied watchmaking at Bowman Technical School. He furthered his training in Switzerland, where he was accepted by the Watchmakers of Switzerland Training and Educational Program, and worked for the Hamilton Watch Company until opening up his own business. But business isn't really the thing that drives him. More of a watchmaker and just doing the things that I like. I've always enjoyed creating things, so working on the design of, of new watches and and being creative is something that's very important to me, and I've never really had a lack of ideas. They just come to me. Not all watchmakers get to create watches, so I, I have the, uh, the privilege of doing that also. Roland told me that he's always enjoyed chess, but fell away from it for a while. Several years ago, Roland was taking a tour of the National Watch and Clock Museum. And uh, I was going through there, and I was looking at that display, and I had never seen these before, and I saw the Paul Morphy dial with those uh, very elegant chess figures on there. That was just such a cool dial. And I knew immediately that I was going to use those as an inspiration for an RGM wristwatch. But he didn't begin making the watch until a few years after his visit to the museum. But once he started pursuing the design, he began with research, exploring Morphy's history and legacy. I did enjoy reading about his trip to Europe uh, his triumphant trip that he went there and we've been beating all the masters in, in Europe. And we have a little synopsis of that on our website with the watch so people can know a little bit about where that idea came from. Roland wanted to emulate Morphe's watch design. And one of the key original features was the enamel dial. Now, in general, enameling is the process of fusing glass onto metal. We experience enameled objects every day, like sinks, cookware and often in jewelry. But when it comes to Morphe's enameled watch dial, the process is quite complex. Some people confuse enamel painted dials 
with real glass, you know, fired enamel. And that's what we're talking about here. This is a powdered glass that is fired in succession and ground and polished. The printing is put on, and that's also made of the glass, fired again, so it's all into the surface. It's really an art and, and, and a skill all upon itself. Roland explained that Morphe's dial is more than just a painted surface encased in glass. What's really happening is that colored powdered glass, as fine as talcum powder, is applied to a metal plate. The maker then heats the metal surface in an oven so that it's hot enough to melt the glass. That melted glass then becomes the new surface. The process is repeated layer by layer by layer. It requires precision because many things could go wrong very quickly. It's easy for it to crack. If there's any mistake made in the process, you just throw it away. You really got to be set up to, to do it right. It takes so much experience to know where to start and how to finish it, how not to crack it. Like when it comes out of that oven the last time, they'll actually have to, it'll, it'll be bowed up and they actually have to flatten it with a piece of charcoal. If you do it too soon, you ruin the surfaces too soft. If you wait, you know, seconds too late, you crack the dial. And of course, Rowan wanted his watch to be true to the original. There was no way he was going to take shortcuts, but he had a dilemma. We do not make enamel dials in our shop. It's a very specific skill. And to do it at the level we would want, we would need someone who was an expert in doing that. And you need someone to do it at the right quality. You need someone that has many years of experience. Uh, And that's what we needed to find for this dial because we had to do it justice. Roland actually searched for about five years before finding the right person to make the dial. I finally found a gentleman in Switzerland uh, who had uh, retired from uh, doing that his whole life. And he had a little shop in his house and were his only watch customer. Once Roland had found the Swiss gentleman, he was then ready to make the watch. So really it was a matter of taking the original design, sizing that proportionally and, and deciding exactly what we would, how we would have RGM on it and, and making a real double sunk enamel dot. And uh, it certainly is a beautiful uh, piece and it's made exactly the way the original one was made. Roland titled the Morphe-inspired piece, Chess in Enamel. And for the watch enthusiasts out there listening, here's how Roland describes it. It is a 43 millimeter mechanical wristwatch. It has our in-house caliber 801 movement, which is a 19 joule manually wind classical uh, movement that is entirely hand finished. The dial is the first double sunk dial that we did is the chess one where there's actually three layers of enamel. So it's actually made in three major uh, pieces and then soldered together. The layout of the dial is pretty much exactly as the Morphe dial uh, with the chess uh, pieces at, at each hour indication. Of course, then we have our name on it instead of the Paul Morphe name. This dial said made for Paul Morphe by the American Watch Company, which then later became the Waltham Watch Company. Our dial says RGM Watch Company, Lancaster Penna, 
which is the old way of saying Pennsylvania. It is a uh, beautiful, very classic looking piece. We have a coin or fluted uh, edges on the side of the watch. Then we also put on it our keystone hands. So the hands themselves have the Pennsylvania keystone shape in the hand itself. So that's basic description of our uh, chest enamel with Paul Morphy inspired uh, RGM watch. People theorize that Morphy pawned off his original watch, along with other valuables, when he was in need of money. And although it would be nice to have the full piece available to see today, Roland is thankful that the dial survived. Because it would have been a shame to actually lose that, because that's really the most significant part of that watch, is the dial. I don't think there was anything unique about the movement. Really, what was unique about his watch was the dial. We can connect the worlds of chess and watchmaking through some shared characteristics. Between the two, the word that comes to mind is precision. You know, in watchmaking, you have to be very precise. Precision is everything in watchmaking. And, and, in, and in chess, you know, it's a precise game. You, you, you have to really think about your move. You got to be looking ahead. It's the same way when you're building a watch or, or repairing a watch or whatever, you, know, you have to kind of look ahead at what the next step is uh, or what the next several steps are. Through inspiration of the dial, a bit of Morphe's legacy continues through Roland's chess and enamel piece. When people see Roland's watch, they have the opportunity to learn more about Morphe. In the same way, Fritz Lieber's story is a piece of Morphe that echoes in the present. Even greater than his cultural marks is Morphe's influence on the chess world. I could probably do an entire series of episodes related to this topic, but for now, we'll stay close to the surface. Morphe almost never read books about chess. He didn't have formal training or study, and at the time, there wasn't even much chess literature. Ironically, today we can find countless books referencing Morphe, and in many of those books, Morphe and his tactics are emphasized. He was so advanced during his time that he created new ways of playing chess that others long after him would emulate. Here's Lucas again. He didn't really study under other players because he generated all the ideas himself, which is what's so amazing about what he accomplished. He was able to do that in something of a vacuum, to be so much better than everybody else. And if you look back historically at the players who are leaps and bounds better than every other player who played at the same time as them, you really only come up with a handful of names. You come up with Paul Morphy, you come up with Bobby Fischer, Gary Kasparov, and you could come up with Magnus Carlsen. People were writing books and articles about Morphy during the 1900s, and he's still being analyzed and studied today. There are thousands of modern chess resources, and often Morphy's matches are referenced to teach the fundamentals and the core strategies of chess. Just take a cursory look through the internet and see how many videos have been made analyzing Morphy's chess playing. Chess players all around the world can take pride in the great history and contributions Morphy brought to their sport. However, we can't look away from the sorrow that accompanied Morphy. In the beginning of his life, he enjoyed chess purely for the beauty of the game, but then somewhere down the line, developed contempt for the game he contributed so much to. Everybody wanted to talk to him about chess, whether he was in chess mode or not. And I think that that created a significant amount of disillusionment in his life 
both toward the end of his trip to Europe and also upon his return to the United States. What if Morphe embraced chess like the professionals of today? If he knew how much the game would grow and develop, would he have continued to despise it? Of course, we'll never know. And despite the number of chess moves Morphe could anticipate, he could never have seen how his moves on a checkered wooden board would cross the boundaries of time and affect the future of today. See the Morphe dial for yourself at the National Watch and Clock Museum in Columbia, Pennsylvania. The museum will be glad to welcome you. Learn more about the museum and how to get there by going to nawcc.org. Be sure to check out Lucas's YouTube channel, where you can find his in-depth presentations about famous chess players. People from all over the world have tuned in. That's been one of the most gratifying parts is, you know, hearing from people from New Zealand to India to Eastern Europe to all over the world, um, connecting and, and talking about how they've enjoyed the, the content. And also a big thank you to Roland Murphy. Learn more about Roland's work and beautiful watches at rgmwatches.com. He and his team offer so many excellent watch services. Always high quality, never compromising. We're one of the only places you can go to have a custom watch made. The other side of our business is we do a lot of repair and restoration. We love to keep those old pieces from the past still working. This episode was written, produced, and mixed by Anna Tran. Supervision and editing by Keith Lehman and Laura Taylor. Advertising by Rihanna Lau. The music composed by Keith Lehman and Mark Ryan. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time.